Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here this morning. It's funny, I'm going to let you in on a, a little, little secret you may not know when uh, people come to speak, that when you get up here in the front and everybody's looking this way, there's a moment of panic. Because you think for a second, oh no, all of these people are here to listen to me. But then, beautiful thing about preaching the Word of God is you get here and you realize, oh wait, they're not here to hear me. They're here to hear God speak to them from Scripture. And there's a, I know there's a calmness that comes with that. There's also a great calmness being here back at New York Creek Baptist Church. I spent many years here. I loved growing up here. I know many of you, and many of you have known me all through the years. And it's always a great pleasure to come back here. It's great to see the changes. I love driving up and seeing the sign. That wasn't here last time I was here. And it's always just amazing to see what God's doing and the work that God is doing through the people of New Rocky Creek. This morning, though, I'd like to talk about country music. (laughs) So when I was growing up, uh, one of my favorite things was occasionally Dad would have to go out to work on Saturday mornings, and I would get to ride with him. My favorite part of that was we would stop by Hardy's and I'd get breakfast. But as we went, we would listen to uh, what I thought of that day as Christian music, which means we listened to country music and golden oldies, or a lot of talk radio. And it was a, a great thing that I learned from, Christ, from country music. I learned that sometimes you have to move to Tennessee if you have ex-wives in Texas. I learned that sometimes your rowdy friends come over, but sometimes they settle down. I learned that if you have a cheating heart, that it will tell on you, but that one day you may see the light. It's, it's we laugh, but I did learn about pain and heartbrokenness from listening to these songs. I mean, that's the purpose of the art form, is that through these emotions that we all share and that we all understand, we can understand the more difficult parts of the human experience. There's this great way that we can, we may not have experienced something, but when we hear this song, and we, we can experience the emotion in it, we can understand it. And now you're wondering, well, what does country music have to do with Scripture? Well, I'm going to argue this morning that the greatest country and western song ever written is in the book of Hosea. Think about it. You may not have thought about it before. It's this man. He's just doing his job, living his life. And then he gets married to this woman. She's not the most faithful woman. And then he has some kids, and you don't know what's going on with those kids. And he has this life that is filled with heartbreak. He has this life that is filled with betrayal and loneliness. But I think through this this story that God has written, this very real story of a very real man's life, we can get a handle on understanding how our sin affects God, or the heartbreak and the betrayal that God feels when we sin against Him. It stands as a a living example of not just the consequence of physical adultery, but spiritual adultery before our God, but also a handle on which we can understand the seriousness of our sin. 
in our lives and in our marriages. The issue today is we have, we're a lot like the Israelites sometimes. We know that there's a loving God. We know that there's a providing God, but we will chase after other things. We will put other things as our, maybe, as our first priority in life, and we don't look at those things from God's perspective. And I want to show you that in the, in the story of Hosea's marriage to Gomer, I want to show you that, there's a very, that God reveals to us the very real relational consequences of our sin and rebellion against him. But also, in that pain and suffering, we can understand God's true redemptive love. In the first chapter of Hosea, I'm going to unpack that our sin speaks volumes, that our lives testify to who we belong to, what names we have, but also that our relationship with God is broken in our sin. In the second chapter, I'll show you that our sin is fully idolatry against God, even when God provides for us. And he can never sustain us, but that God promises that he will redeem us. In the third chapter, I'm going to show that we must not just hear God's words and know what God says, but do those things. So first, I'd like to look at, as we look at chapter 1, of the, chapter of the book of Hosea. So open your Bibles up to Hosea chapter 1. Or turn on your phones or however you do this. <laughs> Hosea chapter 1. And I want to talk about that, in our, that Hosea's story tells us that in our sin, our relationship with God is broken. And our life testifies honestly about how little we care about the sin problem that is breaking our relationship with God and how desperately we need reconciliation. As you're turning, I want to give you a little background. Hosea's life was a living sermon illustration. Hosea was a real person. Sometimes when we look at Scripture, we think, this is just something written down thousands of years ago that has nothing to do with my life. But Hosea was a very real man who lived a very real life with other people in communities just like this. Hosea lived in a small town as well. He lived in the northern kingdom. And so everybody knew him, and they knew his story. The context of what was going on that day, we, we get in the, the first verse, it gives us a list of kings. Just to tell you how things were, the last king listed is a guy named Jeroboam who is Jeroboam II, who is one of the most successful kings in the northern kingdom's history. We're not ever, we're not ever, he's never presented as a righteous king. He's not presented as a king who led the people to worship God more, but he's presented as a king who made the economy great. He's presented as a king that expanded the borders back to their full extent. Israel had been going downhill for a while, and under Jeroboam they had experienced this unprecedented prosperity. But the prosperity came at a cost. The people started to look inward and congratulate themselves on how well they were doing. They forgot that God had brought them to this point. They forgot the guy that had promised that they would, he would always provide for them. Now things did not go well eventually for this man. Eventually 
the kingdom would gradually fall to each king being assassinated and the, the kingdom gradually just falling apart and worse and worse men being in charge of the kingdom. Eventually, Israel would be wiped off the face of the earth by the Assyrians invading the northern kingdom. Because at this point, three prophets, in addition to Hosea, were preaching in Israel. So there were four people walking around preaching. And their message was simple. Repent, for judgment is at hand. And if you repent, God will bring redemption. It was Hosea, Amos, Micah, and Isaiah were all preaching at the same time. Now people have not changed in the past 3,000 years. And the truth is, sometimes we don't hear with just one voice. And so God knew this, and he knew the people, and he gave four voices. So let's look at, at chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, and we'll see God's orders to Hosea. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry, and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. And so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. I'm reading out of the New King James. So even today, the discuss, the even today with, with our, our, our more permissive society, the description of Gomer is shocking. She is a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. The text doesn't tell us what she did before, but what God is illustrating to us here is his history with Israel. And it's amazing that he says, go and marry a harlot and bring her out of harlotry. Because in this, God is reminding Israel who they were before, that they once did not worship the one true God. You think, you think back to when they were in Egypt, you know, Moses had to tell them which God he was speaking of when he came and spoke to them. He brought them, he chose them not because they were the most righteous people on earth, but because he could redeem them. And he could make them into a faithful people. So even at the beginning, Israel is reminded that this is a God who brings redemption. And when we look, it says, he gives them already the illustration that this is supposed to save. Because many of the prophets, their lives were living illustrations. God would ask them to do certain things, and he says, by this thing, this almost theater that the people could see, the prophets were preaching these very real things that, that, that their sin was producing. And so in this, he says, by this woman you marry, God is showing how you are treating God. And as we go forward, uh, let's look at verse 4 and 5. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel in the house of Jehu, bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel and Jezreel. The names in Hosea are very important. Jezreel is very similar to Israel. 
in its construction. But Jezreel means God will sow or God will reap. It's, a, it's an agricultural term. It was also the name of a valley. In that name, God is pronouncing judgment on the current ruling family of Israel. There was a man named Jehu. Now, God had called Jehu to um, wipe out, essentially, the line of Ahab. Ahab had been a wicked king. We, we know the stories of Ahab and Jezebel and his interactions with the prophet Elijah and Elisha and just how wicked Ahab was. And his son Joram took the throne, and God called a man named Jehu to become the king. The problem was Jehu did what the Lord asked and then turned his back on God. And his kingdom became a less um, dedicated to the Lord kingdom than even Ahab's had been. Jehu led the people into more sin than Ahab had. Now, there was economic prosperity, so the people stopped caring and they did not call on the Lord. They did not care that Jehu set up more altars to the Baals, to all the idols, and encouraged the people in this because things were going so well. In this, we have, in this name Jezreel, God is saying, what you have sown, I will now reap. God is saying, the consequences and judgment for your sin is coming, Israel. God didn't just strike them down out of the blue. He told them what he was doing. He warned them. We have an indictment also of these rulers, the people who were in charge, that as you read through the, as, as the Old Testament, as Israel was set up, the leaders of the people had a responsibility to set the tone of being a God-fearing nation. And instead, you see the leaders leading the people farther and farther into idolatry. And then next, to further the illustration, Gomer has a little girl. Let's look at verse 6 and 7. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhumah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away, yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor my sword or battle by horse or horseman. Now the language is a little different here. Jezreel was the son of both Gomer and Hosea. But the language used is, we're not sure if Lohurama belonged to Hosea. And the name kind of shows that. Her name is, is, is uh, defined for us, she has not received mercy, is a way to look at it, or not known mercy. But another way to look at it is not loved. Think about this. I wanted you to see this. This is a small town. People know each other. Imagine you're walking down the street and you see Hosea's daughter walking down the Hosea and Goma's daughter and her name is not loved. You know them. You know the family. And you know that little girl's name. This should have been shocking to the people of Israel. This should have awakened them from their complacency and their sin. It's 
it is this strong, strong God's judgment. Because at the same time, you see this little girl walking down the street. Hosea is preaching. Hosea is preaching, calling the people away from their sin, reminding the people of who their God is. Her name would have provoked them to think, who does she belong to? The further thought is, is Israel acting like their God's child? Is Israel even loved by God anymore? Does she even belong to God? And will she be shown mercy? Hosea is asking these questions. And then he has one final child. Verses 8 through 11. Now when she had weaned Lohuramah, she conceived and bore a son. And God said, call his name Loami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And then the children of Israel and the children of Judah shall be gathered together, and shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land, and great will be the day of Jezreel. So this time, there's a little boy, and his name is Loami, which means not my people. But as you see the boy walking through the village, as you see him walking through the town, his name essentially means he's not part of my family, or Hosea's illustration is this one doesn't really belong to me. This is powerful. As Hosea's preaching to the people, he tells them, your actions have angered God. There are consequences for your sin. That the way you're acting, you're acting as if you do not belong to me, is what God is saying. And God tells the people of Israel, looks at them and says, then I'll give you what you want. And it's this, it should just stop you in your tracks. It should have stopped them in their tracks. But at the same time, in the same breath, there's this redemption that's promised. Hosea quotes Genesis. He quotes a promise to Abraham after he had taken Isaac up on the mountain. When God promises to Abraham that his descendants would be countless, more than the sands of the sea, that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Paul argues in Galatians that this seed is individual. It's not meaning a bunch of children, but one person, one man. And on this side of the cross, we know that that seed through which all the nations are blessed is Christ. And Hosea is looking forward to Christ here. Hosea is looking forward to the head that you see in verse 11. The one who will be named by the people, Judah and Israel, as the one to look to. The new king that will heal that broken relationship. Hosea is saying... You as a people, you keep congratulating yourself on how well things are going. And you don't understand, you need a savior. You need redemption. I don't think the people got it, though. It's it's sad as you read the rest of Israel's history that you read the rest of this book, the entire rest of the book, chapters 4 through how many chapters Hosea has, 
are Hosea just preaching and pleading with the people. He gets, as you read through the book, he gets more and more desperate, more and more using different illustrations, just just asking the people, please, please, I want you to get it. I want you to turn from your sin. He says, look at my children. Do you not understand these illustrations? But they refuse to repent. They refused to turn. Now, if you're having a hard time kind of getting this, I will return to country music. Oftentimes, like I said, these songs can help us get it. Uh, A theologian named Alan Jackson spoke on this at one point. And he sang a song where he asked the deep question, who's cheating who? Who's being true? And who don't even care anymore? And I will tell you that that was the state of the world in Israel at that time. You couldn't even tell anymore because of how deep they had gotten in their sin and idolatry. You couldn't even tell if your neighbor was a faithful follower of God or if they just didn't care anymore. They had gone beyond just the dichotomy of God worshipers or not God worshipers. They they just didn't care anymore. And that was the sad state of affairs that God's judgment came in. Think about ourselves, though, as we interact with other people, as we interact in the world, what names do we carry? Do we carry the name loved by God? Do our lives testify to that? Can people even tell whether or not we're cheating on God or not? This is a a great question. How can we live in such a way that we don't carry the name not loved or not of my family, but we carry the names loved by God. We carry the names belonging to the people of God. Well, first, Jesus gives us, he doesn't leave us hanging on this. Jesus tells us we can love one another. John 13, 35, in the upper room, Jesus tells the disciples, he says, look, if I've loved you and as I loved you, you must love one another. It is no longer love your neighbors yourself, but Jesus says, as he loved us is how we are to love one another. And he gives, he finishes that with, and this is how they will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. It's an amazing thing that we can show that we are, we belong to God, especially as we see in this room, among our church family and our community, this is how we testify that we belong to God, is that we love one another. Second, It has to flow out into the world. Peter puts it in 1 Peter as, we must keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Peter calls on the people in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 to fight against the sin that wages wages war against our souls. And he says, in that, in that we are to live honorably among the Gentiles, the unbelievers of the world. And in that, put to rest the accusations they have against us and show the light of God's glory to them on the day of his visitation. To to claim those names, we must here love one another, and there live honorably and show God's love there. As believers, we're called to testify of our love of God. And as we're testifying to this, we still have to be concerned, what are our lives testifying to those who know us? What are our actions saying? 
As we look at chapter 2, we will see how Hosea, we have a sermon of Hosea that brings these ideas together. And in this sermon, Hosea, it takes the form of a divorce proceeding. We have moved from this family life in the naming of children to almost a courtroom scene where Israel is on trial. And they're the worst witnesses against themselves. Look with me at verses 4 through 5 of chapter 2. And God bring charges against her and saying, I will not have mercy on her children. For they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She has conceived them and has behaved shamefully. For she has said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Look down to verse 8. For she did not know, this is God speaking, that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season, and I will take back my wool and its linen, given to cover her nakedness. And now I'll uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. We see the full sins of Israel lay bare here. We see a wife who has gone against, the living illustration of Gomer, a wife who's gone to other people for her needs, for her sustenance. And Hosea says, you know me and my family, just as you've seen this, Israel has gone after other things for their sustenance, for their provision, instead of the God who brought them out of slavery in Egypt, the God who has provided for them. The imagery here is amazing. He, ta- he talks about the, the major idols of the day were the Baal fertility cults. The Baals just mean masters. It was the name of just any god who was the master of some sort of element of nature. Because the Baals claimed dominion over the sun, over the rain, over the crops, over the seed growth, over how well the sheep produced wool. The Baal cults claimed that they controlled all of those things. Now, if you're, they claimed that if you were in favor with them and did what they asked for the sacrifices, that these things would go well. The people of Israel knew better. They knew better. But these cults were alluring because these cults were a way that you could disobey God, ignore his other commands, and still say, oh, we're going to have rain and we're going to have sun and we're going to have good crops. And that's why I wanted you to understand that this was a time of unprecedented prosperity in the land. Because to the Israelites, they're like, see, this is working. They could point and they say, see the fertility cults of what we should have been doing the entire time. The people had placed their prosperity and their safety above everything else. They were willing to debase themselves in front of these other gods. Because the the practices of these cults were honestly disgusting. The things that they required were adultery in its most base sense. And the people had begun to believe, they had begun to tell them the story and listen to the story of, yes, these Baal cults are what's sustaining us, but God, in verses 8 to 10, does not let their lies stand. God calls them on their lies. And he says, look, even in your adultery, I am still a faithful God. 
even when you turned your back on me and were running around town to other people, I still provided for you. The idols had no power. But God says, look, when you lie to yourselves, you're also lying to the other nations. And he had called them to be a light to the other nations, to show them who the one true God was. And in their sin, they were leading the other nations away from God. To understand, I'm going to go back to country music. Because this really is understanding. This helps you understand. Uh, a man named, you may know this song, Garth Brooks sang a song called The Thunder Rolls. It may have started playing in some of your heads right now. But it is this driving song that centers around the wind and the rain and this mighty thunderstorm. And in that story explaining that a man has been found out against an adultery against his wife. And at first in the song, she's worried. She's waiting for him. She's worried for his well-being. And then he comes home, and she knows. The, the line in the song, it, when her fears are confirmed, Garth Brooks writes, the, when the lightning flashes in her eyes, and he knows that she knows, and the thunder rolls. The thunder has rolled on Angela here. They thought they were getting away with their sin. They thought God didn't know, or they thought God didn't care. But through Hosea's preaching, the truth has come home, and the thunder is rolling. And God is saying, this is your sin laid bare. You have no excuses. And it's amazing that all of these things we understand, this betrayal, this pain, and this broken relationship that we hear in these songs and we understand about these songs is here in Hosea. The language, there's pain in it. There's pain from God's perspective that we often don't think about and we don't hear. Reuben be verse 13. God says, I will punish her for the days to the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But she forgot me, says the Lord. Do you hear the pain in that? She forgot me, says the Lord. There's heartbreak in those words from God. And honestly, God is right to be angry. God is right to just bring down judgment immediately in Israel with no recourse. He has every right. He is the Lord. Hosea had every right to divorce his wife. But the interesting thing is, God doesn't react as we would. There is a reversal in Hosea. There's this offer of redemption. That as, we, as we examine God's pain and betrayal, we expect judgment. But what we, ex, what we, what we find is redemption. Read with me verses 14 through 20. And God says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and will bring her into the wilderness and will speak comfort to her. And I will give her vineyards from there. The valley of Achor is a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Israel, Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband. 
and no longer call me my master. For I will take from their mouth the name of Baals, and they shall remember, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me. In righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. The reversal here is breathtaking. Because verse 2014 should have start with, and I will strike them from the face of the earth. But instead, it says, I will allure her. And it's this amazing language that, to be honest, many of us, we're not as familiar with the Old Testament as we should be. And when we think of the Old Testament, we think of God, we think of judgment, we think of this angry guy with a bunch of commands, and we do not see this loving redeemer that Hosea presents. That this is who God speaks of when he speaks of God. And God amazingly reminds Israel already of the salvation he's brought in the past. He reminds them of bringing them out of Egypt and that great salvation. And he also reminds them of they're following the Baals. He says, just like I made a covenant with you in the past, you've made a covenant with the Baals. But let me tell you the difference. Baal is just a word that means master. And the relationship between those idols and the Israelites was master and slave. They were enslaved to their sin. But God says, let me tell you what our relationship looks like. You will call me husband. It's not this relationship of someone just bringing down commands with no care. It is husband. It is a marriage. This is the language of spouses, of love for one another. It is this amazing covenant that God speaks of. That it's not just a small covenant. It's not just a covenant of rules and following those rules. It is broader. All creation will be involved in this covenant, as you see, that he's going to bring in the beasts of the air, the birds of the air. This language here is often used, the beast of the field, the birds of the air, is often used for the unclean things. When you think from Israel's perspective, the most unclean, clean thing you could be would have been a Gentile. So think about it. Hosea is expanding this in this covenant where God is our husband. He's expanding it to those who are unclean, who are outside. They can now come in and be part of it. In case you're wondering, that's us. That's us who were not allowed to be part of the family before, have now been grafted on in the language of Paul. And this covenant is based on the very attributes that God gives to Moses when, Moses, when he passes in front of Moses. He says, look, this is not based on you. What this is based on it's God's righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. This is the foundation on which this covenant sits. And it's amazing because of that. This is a covenant that only God can initiate and God can sustain. But because it is God, he will sustain it. 
to the very end in his faithfulness. And as we look at 21 through 23, I want you to hear these words, not as just poetry, not as just a sermon from Hosea. Hear them as wedding vows. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And then I will sow her for myself in the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. This is, we, we often miss the language of this. This is the couple standing in front with witnesses. And God is saying to the people of Israel, you will be my people, as in I will be your husband. And the response that they have to respond in faith to God is, and you will be our God. It's this beautiful illustration that Hosea gives us. At first we see his own marriage to an adulterous woman with these children. But then we see this perfect marriage. So you understand this small thing, so you see this large thing. This is, it's shifted from a courtroom scene we saw in the last chapter to a beautiful wedding ceremony. Bigger, better, more flowers, you know, more food, more guests. It is on, on view. And there's this weight that comes from God himself as the one who has pursued us. God himself is the one who is saying these words. He's saying that he'll love them forever, forever and ever. Amen. And if you think about this, how does this really apply in your own life? One, this is a call to look at our salvation differently. Our salvation is not a prayer that you said in the past, but is an ongoing relationship with God. By faith in Christ, we can have a relationship with the very creator and sustainer of the universe. This is not a burdensome salvation of rules. and This is a, this is a salvation of joyful obedience to one who shows us compassion and gracious, graciousness when we deserve judgment. This is restoration and reconciliation with God on display. Peter and 1 Peter even uses these words to describe the salvation that had come to his Gentile believers. That once you had not known mercy, now know mercy. Once you had not known love, now know love. Once you were who were not a people in any way are now God's people. Second, this really illustrates the purpose, the divine purpose of a Christian marriage. This is language that Paul picks up and speaks about in Ephesians. In Ephesians uh, 5, 22 and 23, or 31 and 33, he lays out what Christian marriage reveals when he says, therefore a man shall leave his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Or the, sorry, a man shall cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. According to Genesis. And then he says, this mystery is profound. And what I'm saying is it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is saying that your Christian marriage testifies to the relationship between Christ and the church. And that's an amazing thing. We often, we get lost in the shuffle and we forget what our marriages are about as Christians. We say, oh, well, marriages are to have kids. Well, if you're following the first one, you will have kids. 
and they will follow the Lord. But even if you don't have kids, you can still have that marriage that testifies. You say, look, just as my love is for my spouse, just as how we are, we look to each other's needs, that we are gracious and kind and we build each other up and push each other into holiness, so to an even greater scale, on a cosmic level, Christ with his church, with the people of God, he is showing love and kindness and transforming them in obedience. There's a beauty to that. There is a goal in that. Because we have to admit, no, no one's marriage is perfect. But God has not left us hanging and wondering, well, what are we supposed to be doing? God has told us, this is what I have set for you. And in the final chapter, chapter 3, we see Hosea put these words into practice in his own marriage. It's an amazing thing. Hosea had to decide, would this sermon change his life? In chapter, in chapter 3, look at verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover who, and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her myself, for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days, and you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too, I will be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. After the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord. Their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Hosea 3 is amazing. For the first time we hear Hosea speak with his own voice. We see him say, I will do this. And you can see in this that he got it. He understood what God was saying. The price he pays for her is amazing. It is the price that one bought a slave and redeemed a slave for. Hosea had to go and buy his wife out of bondage. And he brought her back. The words were not, and now I own you and you have to do everything I say. His words back to her mirrored the marriage ceremony that God had just spoke to him. This marriage covenant of this is who we'll be together. And I don't want you to miss, Christ is all over this page. Because just as Gomer was in bondage to her sin, to her adultery, so too, without Christ, we are in bondage to our sin. We are slaves to those desires, to those impulses. We know what's wrong, and we do it anyway. And this is what Christ saved me out of, and this is what Christ has saved. Those of you who are believers, he saved you out of this. Hosea is looking forward to that, that day when he says in those, in those days when they will finally fear the Lord. He's talking about Jesus. That in those days that head will come. In those days the seed will come and in him will be found this amazing redemption. Hosea is an amazing book. Our country music industry owes a great debt to it today. But we as Christians owe a great debt to it. As you can see from the New Testament, it really affected Paul and Peter 
and it should affect us that greatly. We should see that in our sin, our relationship with God is broken. Without God, we have no chance. Without Christ, we have no chance of reconciliation with God because our adultery and our idolatry makes us just not care. And that idolatry, though, the things we turn to that are not God, can never sustain us. And even in those times, God is a faithful God who still provides for us. But he's calling us and he's saying, there, is, there are consequences for your actions, but there's a promise of redemption. And then like Hosea, we are called not only to know God's words, but to put them into practice. In our lives, in our marriages, love one another here in the family, live honorably among the Gentiles, and have a marriage and relationships that testify to that relationship of Christ with the church. As I finish, I want to tell a story about redemption. There was a man who was, who was a hard-living, hard-drinking uh, country singer. He wore all black. He talked about walking the line. Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash lived out the songs that he wrote. He has a song about cheating on his wife with one of his background singers. But, but, something changed in his life. And I'll tell you, that thing was Christ. Someone loved Johnny Cash enough to preach the gospel to him, and he heard it. After many years of fighting against it, he heard it. And his life changed. Now, he did not instantly get perfect, but his priorities changed. He married June Carter and stayed with her till she died. He appeared at several Billy Graham's crusades and would sing gospel music. And I would argue his recording that has affected me most in my life is that in the 90s he recorded an audio Bible of the New Testament. And let me tell you, when you listen to him reading the gospels and talking about Jesus, talking about sin and talking about redemption, he feels it. You can hear it in his voice that this man has experienced redemption. And it changed his life. And it's an amazing thing. He understood you don't just hear the word of God, you live it. And so today I invite you, as we sing our, uh, as we sing our closing song, that if you desire, as I come down the front, if you desire that redemption with God and you've never experienced that reconciliation, today is the day to come. And for those of you who have known that redemption and that salvation, I urge you, today is the day to grab on, to understand the weight of that salvation, that beauty and glory. And I also call on you today to live those words. If today is the day you must repent of what your marriage is testifying to, I urge you to pray. The Lord promises redemption. But our lives must testify to that beauty and that love and that redemption.